Hello, and welcome to Cabana Chats, a podcast about writing and community brought to you by The Resort, an international community of writers based in Queens, New York City. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. On this episode of the podcast, I had the honor of chatting with Sari Botton. When I'm working with other writers, I try to help them strike a balance so that they won't have what we call share shame. You need to be in control of the writing before you share it. You don't want to just be sharing your journal. Sari Botton is a writer and editor living in Kingston, New York. She's a contributing editor at Catapult and the former essays editor for Long Reads. She edited the anthologies Goodbye to All That, Writers on Loving and Leaving New York, and Never Can Say Goodbye, Writers on Their Unshakable Love for New York. She has three newsletters, Oldster Magazine, Adventures in Journalism, and Memoir Monday, and they are all terrific. Her memoir and essays, And You May Find Yourself, will be published by Heliotrope in June 2022. Sari and I talked about running co-working spaces for writers, the difficulties of the past year plus, plus, plus of the pandemic, and the joy of sitting around a fire with other writers and eating pizza, something I think we should all do a little bit more in our lives. This is a really terrific conversation, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. I am so excited to be here today with Sari Botton for the Cabana Chats podcast. And as we get started, as always, Sari, I want to welcome you here, say thank you for coming on the podcast, and just ask you to say hello to our audience and give a little bit of a background about who you are in the world outside of your life as a writer. Well, first of all, hello, everybody. Um, And thank you, Catherine, for having me on today. Um, So I, you know, my personal life and my work life are very much aligned. Um, I've been a writer my entire life, and most of my close friends are writers. Um, But I also do other things. I play ukulele, and I'm in a little tiny act with my husband called Lovey Pie, where we play music and you know, we write some of our own songs and we do like old timey songs. And sometimes we do like old timey versions of like classic rock. (laughs) Um, And uh, I live in Kingston, New York. And um, I am just a person who is going about life in a pandemic and trying to survive and not... um, you know, freak out too much. That sounds like something a lot of us can relate to, (laughs) not trying to freak out too much. Um, And you mentioned that you're in Kingston. And one of the reasons I was particularly excited to talk with you is because here at the resort for a while, we had um, an in-person co-working space. And I know that in Kingston, you had the Kingston Writer Studio And there's a story behind that, perhaps. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, what the Kingston Writer Studio is, was, will be. I would love to hear your thoughts. Well, um, it's been really heartbreaking for me uh, 
to have to close Kingston Writer Studio, the physical Kingston Writer Studio, which was a small co-working space for writers in Kingston, New York, that I founded in late 2016 and had to close in March 2020 because you can't safely co-work uh, in a pandemic pre-vaccine. And um, I've been, I haven't really gotten over that. Um, I started it because uh, I needed it. I am someone who invents the things I need when they don't exist. And this is one of those things. Uh, I moved upstate from the East Village in 2005. And while I love living in the Mid-Hudson Valley, we first moved to Rosendale and then Kingston. Um, It's really hard to go from a city with 8 million people to first a town with 6,000 people and then a city with 24,000 people. It's, and also to be so removed from the literary and media worlds that I was an integral part of when I lived in New York City. So after many years of being up here and starting to lose my mind, I realized what I needed was to co-work with other writers uh, not just anybody. I didn't want just anybody in my co-working space. I wanted writers. I wanted people I could talk shop with and commiserate with, you know, about our book deals or our not getting book deals or our deadlines and our editors or the, the writers we were working with. And um, so I, you know, kind of winged it. I I am not a business person. I'm, I don't know how to run a co-working space. I made it up as I went along. Um, I was bad at the business end of it and I persistently lost money, but it was worth it to me because it created community for me. You know, I never knew who was gonna show up at the space on a given day and um, we would take lunch breaks or go out for a drink after. Um, And also I found it really helpful to work among other people and kind of uh, be infected by their focus and their drive. You know, it was was a great way for me to get out of my own way because in my house, I will start cleaning or cooking, you know, often if I am having a hard time focusing. So, It was really great to have that. Um, We also ran workshops. Uh, Melissa Febos came and taught a workshop, Chloe Caldwell, uh, and several others. I taught workshops. I am now thinking of starting um, an online school for Kingston Writers Studio uh, through which I would offer workshops because we have a great growing wealth of, you know, writing community up here uh, in Kingston. A lot of people have moved up uh, because of the pandemic. They've needed more space or whatever. And um, a lot of writers that I've already known are moving up here. And so I'm very seriously considering starting a school, um, an online school. Wow. So there's so much here that resonates with the resort as well. I hear you with the making something because it's something that you needed and you wanted and you didn't necessarily know how to do it. You just like, oh, I'm going to try this. And that's a lot of the history of the resort as well. And we also lost our physical space and in trying to rethink what this could be, this kind of a community for writers. Um, you mentioned starting an online school, which is also something that we're, we're working on um, at the resort. But uh, 
It's interesting you said there's such a community of writers growing more and more in Kingston. Some have moved up during the pandemic, but you yourself moved up first to Rosendale and then Kingston some time ago. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that decision, which I know you've also written about, but... um, you know, the, I mean, just hearing you talk about going from a city of eight million, the kind of serendipity of that kind of situation of just running into people on the street seems like maybe you created that kind of a situation for yourself with the Kingston Writer Studio, right, in a smaller setting. So I'm curious what brought you from New York City upstate initially, just briefly, if you want to talk about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so we're, we're here 16 years now, and my husband and I each lived in Manhattan for 15 years. So for the first time, we're here longer than we were there. Um, although we very much identify as New Yorkers, once a New Yorker, always a New Yorker, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and we were getting kicked out of his incredible loft on the corner of 8th and B that we were paying like next to nothing for. A month before we found out we were losing his place, I gave up my place. Um, Yeah, we were engaged Mm. and I had a little railroad apartment on East 13th Street and he lived on the corner of 8th and B and we were living together in his place and I was illegally subletting mine. Like there wasn't Airbnb yet, but I was using an organization called New York Habitat. Mm. Um, And... uh, And then we decided to just get rid of my place. And a month later, we found out we were losing his. And it was shocking to us. Like, we really thought we were going to live in that rundown but enormous loft, 1,800 square feet on the corner, like on Tompkins Square Park, in this historic building designed by Calvert Vox, who was Frederick Law Olmsted's partner in uh, park design and other design. And um, the building had been a yeshiva that um, George Burns and Paul Reiser had attended. And then, like, in the 70s, it was condemned and became a shooting gallery. And and it just had all this history. Yeah. Um, It was also the facade was used in that Jim Sheridan movie um, in America with all this graffiti on it. And then it got landmarked and our landlord nearly killed us in the process of renovating the facade. And it seems like that was part of the plan to get us to leave. Um, So anyway, we lost our place. We couldn't afford even like you know, a studio in Kew Gardens for what we were paying. And we weren't the suburban type. And so we moved up to the Mid-Hudson Valley where we both had spent time and and loved it. Yeah. Well, clearly laid the groundwork for more and more writers to want to come up there. Like, come be in this space. I I heard you say 1,800 square feet. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness, that's the exact same square footage of the co-working space we lost. I think we all need to avoid anything that has the number 1800 on it. Maybe there's something that might that be it. Number. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so so then you when you finally decided to open the co-working space, was that just like a, a, a crucial number of writers having moved to the area? Was it a certain thing that in that time that said, well, now it's the time to do it? Or what? what why then? I had had a tiny office for myself in the basement of my husband's IT business. And I was so lonely. Like, okay, I solved the problem of I need to leave the house and do my work because at home I'm puttering. So I solved that problem. But then I was too lonely. And um, 
I also, there had been more of a critical mass of people moving up here. The first thing I did was I found some free online poll and I sent it to like 35 writers I know in the Mid-Hudson Valley. And I was like, would you join a co-working space? What is the most you would pay for it? Um, you know, what do you want in a co-working space and all of that? And um, I got a lot of responses. A lot of people were like, I'm in, you know, and um, and then I found a space to rent and I, t I was totally winging it. And I also set it up in like the most fakakta way, like initially, because I, I don't feel comfortable. <laughs> I'm a terrible capitalist. I feel very uncomfortable taking money from people. So I set it up in this loosey-goosey way where it was like, you can join and quit every other month if you want. And <laughs> you can have this model, Sarah. <laughs> I know. I am not meant for business. I am an ideas person. I'm not an execution person when it comes to business. And um, um, I actually had a mentor from the local small business association, and she basically said that to me. She's like, what you lack in business acumen, you make up with, you know, you make for, up for with um, ideas. She's like, but you really need to you really need some help. <laughs> so I wound up creating this model that was hard to administer and that, um, or administrate, I'm not sure which is the right word, but, um, and that took a lot out of me. And then, and I was losing too much money. So then I found another space that was less expensive where it was easier and I made it one, one plan. You, you could join for $100 a month. You could come whenever you want or not come whenever you want. And it was so much easier to handle that way. Um, and right now I'm thinking about reopening, but I'm also a little bit trepidatious because if the numbers start going up again, I would hate to have to break another lease you know, the, the, the COVID numbers. Yeah. I mean, there's so many unknowns. I think we're also exhausted from getting new information and dealing with the information we get all year and the losses we've had and the, uh, our own illnesses. And it's, you know, we're also exhausted. I mean, I'm especially exhausted because I'm recovering from mononucleosis. <laughs> I know. That's, how are you feeling right now? <laughs> I'm, I'm asymptomatic, but I'm still incredibly tired. And next week it'll be five months since I got sick. Oh goodness. Um, yeah. It, and that actually, I had been looking for new spaces and what stopped me was mono. Yeah. That's the, it's the Epstein-Barr virus. Is that right? Yeah. That, yeah mm -hmm. that, it got triggered and our, my whole family had COVID last year and, and it got triggered in my husband and he had symptoms for, I mean, it's just, it lives in you and I'm so sorry that you've been dealing with Thank that you. this year. Um, I just, yeah, it's, you, you know, you talk about you have these great ideas to to bring writers together and they do take energy and it takes energy and different kinds of skills to run a business. And then maybe you get burnt out on managing it all. And you mentioned in the beginning that so much of your professional life is also your writing life and it's all tied together. I wonder if with these different ways that you've been building community, um, did, did that end up helping your writing or were, was it draining you in your writing? It seems like you got a lot of community support, but were you writing as much while doing all of that? Um, eventually, after like the first year, it started to really help me. Once I stopped offering different levels of plans and like you can quit, you can join, you can quit, you can join. Um, then once I made it like, okay, one plan, you're in or you're out, 
it's a six to 12 month commitment. Then I was able to just do my work um, in the company of others. It's kind of like, I've heard it compared to parallel play with mm. toddlers. Um, that's always been really good for me. It's not good for everything. Like when I'm first generating new work, I need to be alone. But then when I get to the phase of like shaping it, I can be in the company of others and that helps me. So I've really learned what does and doesn't work for me. Yeah. Do you share your writing along the way with other writers? Do you have regular folks that you seek feedback from as you're working on something? I have the world's smallest writers group with one other writer um, who is Bev D'Onofrio. Um, she's written three memoirs. The best known is um, Riding in Cars with Boys. Uh, there had been another writer in with us. It had been a three-person writers group, um, but we uh, it, it just turned into the two of us. Um, and because of the work I do, editing, teaching, it's hard for me to be in a larger writers group because it's too much, too much other people's writing coming through my head. Um, I used to run a writers group uh, back in 2000, 2001, 2002. Uh, I had taken a year to live upstate and I started it as a way to ha have writer's community. Uh, I, I lived, um, I rented a room in Rhinebeck and I was so lonely that I posted a sign at the health food store. I drew a cartoon typewriter, which I now have on my arm as a tattoo. Nice. Um, and I said, forming a writer's group. Who wants to join me? And we got this great group of writers from both sides of the Hudson, and we did all these readings, and we shared our writing with each other, and it was really wonderful. And then when I moved back to New York City, um, I brought it there, and um, it was really wonderful. I've, you know, I've really enjoyed writer's community whenever I've been able to make it happen. Yeah, oh, that's great. Um, it's so interesting to hear people have different relationships to writing groups and some don't have them at all. And to hear that you have a very tiny one, it makes sense to, you know, depending on what's coming through your life. Um, one thing that I'm really struck with is that you run so, or you write so many amazing uh, newsletters so uh, online and you've most recently I think the the newest one is called Oldster um, which I would love to talk a little bit about but also I just read your latest post in your newsletter Adventures in Journalism journalism in quotes and it's called um, Where Do We Go From Here The Grim Report from Week 86 of Shelter in Place oh my goodness how was it this how is it to write this, This, which is real coming to terms with how long we've been in this situation? Is anything like this very difficult for you to write, or does it help to put into words what we've all been going through and what you're going through personally? You know, when I started the Adventures in quote-unquote journalism newsletter a few years ago, I was originally just telling the story of my weird wayward career, and it was mostly funny anecdotes about all the weird choices I've made along the way. Um, and then through the pandemic, it's become this place where I kind of vent about what it's like to be a writer in isolation. There's a lot about that. And... Um, as I'm writing it, I'm always a little bit self-conscious. I'm, I'm always worried that it's too revealing, too vulnerable. Um, 
And I always get responses from people, thank you for naming what I'm experiencing right now. Um, and it just comes right out of me. Like it's, it, it, it's, it feels um, necessary for me to write these posts, but I'm always a little bit like, ooh, am I really going to say what I'm, <laughs> what I'm saying here? And um, I never ultimately regret it. Uh, and, and I always, I have a particular audience that really finds what I write resonant in there. Um, every now and then I lose a subscriber or two. I think that a number of people subscribed because they thought I was actually talking about the brass tacks of journalism. Um, so every now and then I lose someone who's like a journalism student or a journalism professor. Um, I, I joke adventures in quote unquote journalism because I, I started out in journalism when I really wanted to be writing personal essays because it was a way to make a writing, make, uh, make a living as a writer and, so, um, and I've made a lot of choices that are very unjournalistic and yeah. Well, it's amazing. I highly recommend people check it out, journalist or no, um, this, this newsletter. You, you mentioned that you will write something and think, oh, this is too vulnerable or should I share this? And then you never regret actually doing it. Is that advice that comes into play or is that conversations you have as an editor when you're working with writers who are writing personal essays? Does that come up? Do you find yourself encouraging writers to get more vulnerable or less? Does it really depend on the writer you're working with? Yes. Uh, yes and yes and yes. <laughs> um, I am pro-vulnerability, but I also think that it's really important um, I use a guideline from the moth, which is write from your scars, not from your wounds. So you want to write about things that you have enough critical distance from uh, generally that you can have perspective on them. Now, when I'm writing some of these posts in the middle of my, you know, uh, pandemic isolation, maybe I don't have 100 percent perspective on them. But I'm also like I'm not writing about super duper tragic stuff. Um, but when I'm working with other writers, I try to help them strike a balance um, so that they won't have what we call share shame, where they're oversharing stuff that they're not ready to share. Um, and I'd say more often than not, when people open up in that way, they connect with writers. Um, but again, it also needs to be processed. You know, you need to be um, you need to be in control of the writing before you share it. You need to, like, um, make sure you know why you're sharing it and have a sense of what the meaning is. You need to make meaning of your writing. You, you don't want to just be sharing your journal. Yeah. That's tough. I mean, I, I tell writers all the time that you can write in many different ways and it doesn't all have to be for public consumption. Sometimes we need that journal writing, right? And it's different. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Oldster and the impetus behind it and how is it going? I really love this project so much. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, what does old mean though? What does old mean? Well, I'm 56. Okay. Um, and uh, I started a series uh, on long reads that I edited called Fine Lines. And it came out of the same place that Oldster comes out of, which is an obsession with what milestones are you supposed to meet when? And it's an obsession I've had since I was 10 years old, when 
at my bowling birthday party at Long Beach Bowl on Long Island, my uncle came up to me and said, wow, you'll never be one digit again. And I was just like, what? There's a thing I'm not going to be anymore? You know, it was like the first milestone I'd encountered, the first place in the timeline of my life where I couldn't turn back in the other direction. And it began this, like, hypervigilance around age and aging, also because I seem to do things out of step with my peers. And so it really just comes out of my own curiosity and fascination with what it means to pass through time in a human body. And Oldster isn't just for old people, it's for everybody. Um, and one of the things I'm trying to do is destigmatize aging by showing that we're all going through it. We all have feelings about the milestones we're passing all through our lives. Uh, the way that I felt at 10 about no longer being one digit anymore. You know, um, I've got Matt Ortile uh, on the site. He took the Oldster questionnaire, which is one of my features. And um, he talks about, you know, what it feels like to turn 30 and no longer be eligible for 30 under 30. Um, you know, and I've also got a 92 year old Holocaust survivor who took the Oldster questionnaire talking about how every day is his birthday and he forgot to age, you know? So I think that there's, that a lot of people experience an incongruence between their chronological age and how they feel about themselves. And it can go in both directions. There are days where I feel like an old soul, way older than 56. And I also, parts of me feel like I'm 10 or 11 um, because that's an age where a lot started changing in my life and a part of me is always there. So that's what Oldster is. That's great. May I suggest, Sari, that you contain multitudes? <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, I'll take it. <laughs> sure. I mean, there's maybe a whole, this is a podcast on writing in community, but we perhaps have entire communities inside of our own selves of people we were at different points in our lives that can be in conversation with each other. You know, um, Matthew Salis has wrote a piece for the Fine Line series on long reads where he talks about, in the case of grief, you know, grieving his late wife, he felt as if he was carrying two times with him. Um, and it, it changed his whole perception of time and, uh, you know, aging. And I was so fascinated by that. That one came about because he had tweeted something about that. And I said, is there an essay in this? Um, and, you know, so I think that in so many different circumstances, Many of us feel like we are carrying another time with us at the same time. I know that also sometimes I can have memories that are so vivid. I feel like I can grab the things in the memory, even though they're from the memories from 20, 30 years ago. Um, I need to look up that Matthew Salis's piece now. And you mentioned that you saw a tweet and said, is there an essay in this? And then I was thinking about I think Alex Chi has given advice about, well, do you want to tweet this or is this an essay? Like, what do you, you know, you might have something you want to write that's not just a tweet, people. Um, you know? I, I am famous for doing that, um, especially when I was at Long Reads. I'm like trolling. <laughs> I'm trolling <laughs> Twitter and, and I'm like, oh, that looks like an essay. And I actually did that with Alexander Chi. Alex's uh, essay... Uh 
Um, our well-regulated militia was the first piece I edited for, uh, commissioned and edited for Long Reads in 2016 from a tweet. Wow. Well, look, there is an argument for being on Twitter, folks. There's so many things that are hard about being on Twitter. And I think even in this piece I referenced in Adventures in Journalism that you wrote, you may have mentioned the discourse that we're all <laughs> caught up in all the time that is fed by Twitter and it can really emotionally affect people to be on there. But how do you how do you go on Twitter and be active online like that and keep it a positive experience for yourself? Do you have any any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's been a really fraught time on social media. And I have decided to save my vehemence for when it really counts. Like when um, I'm supporting someone who is fighting bigotry or when it's close to an election and we need to get people to register or to canvas. Um, I just read an interview, a 2019 profile of Patti Smith, and she talks about why she doesn't identify as a feminist. And the reason is she feels that every ideology has militant factions and she doesn't want to be used in that way. So I'm thinking a lot about, like, I've definitely gotten myself in trouble. Um, I've alienated people. I've been alienated by people when there's just too much vehemence nonstop. And so I'm being more mindful about picking and choosing where I go nuts. <laughs> on social media. Yeah. And I'm also mostly trying to use it to connect with other people, uh, casual friendship, you know, on, on there. Also sharing work on there, commenting on other people's work, sharing other people's work, trying to make it a little less toxic because even if you're saying the most important thing in the world, if everybody's shouting, no one can hear anybody. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And just to see it as a tool, tools of connection. I mean, we need all the tools of connection that we can take right now, I think, you know. Um, you know, I, I, I'm loving this conversation and I want to talk to you forever, but we are winding down on our time here together. And I wonder as we conclude, if you might share a little bit about how you take care of yourself in these difficult times. I think we all need ideas for not only taking care of ourselves during a pandemic when everything is so hard and politically and everything going on, but writing is 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 difficult and it brings up a lot for people and people think they're just supposed to enjoy it. It's like I'm making my art, but it can be very vulnerable, as you said. It can be um, emotionally exhausting. So I'm always curious to ask people what they're doing to take care of themselves in the midst of everything? Well, I try to take walks as much as possible. I've given up on vigorous exercise because I have a tendency to hurt myself and then I guilt myself and I've, I've tried to stay away from that this whole pandemic. Just take walks because it feels good to clear my head um, and to be outside and to look around. So I've been doing that. Um, I take baths now and then, and that's really great. 
Um, I got a medical marijuana license or card this Woo-hoo. year uh, because of <laughs> arthritis. And um, I chill myself out with indica stuff wherever I can. I also try to connect with friends and writers as much as possible. And um, from the beginning of the pandemic, we have been hosting backyard fires with pizza. Um, Lit Hub's Johnny Diamond and my mm-hmm. husband uh, collaborated on making a patio, a stone patio in our backyard where the fire pit sits. And, um, you know, every few weeks or so, uh, we have had people, mostly writers, but a few others who are not, over for pizza and a fire. And it's been a really nice way to not feel completely isolated. And now some of the other writers are picking up the slack and having them. We just went to um, another another writer's uh, fire on Saturday night, and it was really wonderful. Um, so we've been having writers' community, yeah. you know, um, around the fire. That sounds really lovely. And I have to say, I think that your fire pit might be the new Kingston writer studio right now. <laughs> it kind of is. It kind of is. Um, it's been really a really, really nice thing. Oh, that's great. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for being here on the Cabana Chats podcast. It's been so nice to chat with you, Sari. So nice to chat with you, too. And the next time you come to Kingston, come have a fire and some pizza. And that, dear friends, brings us to the end of this episode of Cabana Chats with Sari Botton. I encourage you to check out Sari's work online, and I will definitely put links to her newsletters and various work in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, would you consider subscribing and telling a friend? It helps us reach more people and grow our community. Thank you so much. Our podcast editor is Craig Ely, and our music is by Pat Irwin. Special thanks to resort assistant Nadine Santoro. You can find transcripts of all of our podcast episodes in our free online network, community.theresortlic.com. I'm your host, Catherine Lasoda, and I'll see you next time in the cabana.